Hello and welcome to Co-Recursive. One piece of feedback I get on the podcast is about an episode I did in the past that was a little bit different called Don and Adam Discuss Folds, where the guest was my neighbor and former colleague Don, and we talked about folds and recursion and stuff. Uh, people seem to really like that episode, so uh, I'm going to do something similar. I haven't quite figured out how to start this episode off, so why don't you state your name and what you do? My name is Donald McKay, and I'm a senior developer for Beyond Line Learning Limited. Despite the fact that we live like not that far away from each other, I haven't seen you in, in some time. No, I, I haven't seen any other human beings aside from people that work at the grocery store for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, it's just COVID, <laughs> just, just sheltered in place and, and seeing nobody. Yeah, you know, there was one point where I was driving by and I, I thought to myself, does Adam even still live there? <laughs> like, maybe you moved, maybe you got a different place, yeah. right? And I saw the, uh, was it the broken Christmas lights? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't taken those down yet. They probably would have taken those down if they sold the house. Yeah. A normal person would have taken their Christmas a lights down by, you know, the end of June. <laughs> <laughs> so I found this thing online and I sent it to you called the Cursed Computer Iceberg Meme. What what did you think of this? There's a lot of weird things to do with uh, computers and programming in general. Yeah, there totally is. So let me describe this to you. So I found it. I think on Hacker News, it's a, a very large picture of an iceberg where you can keep scrolling and, and see more and more of the iceberg the further down you go, uh, you know, below the water, basically. Um, and there's various levels, like one is called above the water, one is called on the iceberg, one is below the iceberg, and it keeps going down to the deep, to the abyss. And all scattered around the various levels are are these terms that link to various articles or Wikipedia pages or tweets about computing. So it could be things like, let me just read some, falsehoods that programmers believe about time. Uh, no elegant solution to fizzbuzz exists. Chuck Norris is HTML color, which is super interesting. Um, parsing Perl is undecidable. Postscript is Turing complete. And like it just keeps on going. The further down you go, you know, the more obscure they are i think they're trying to say like oh you might have heard of of x like problems with names but you've probably never heard about pearl being undecidable that's like three levels down the iceberg it's it's even more obscure so this could be like a, a great source of like interesting facts about computers that it could also be like just a great tool for like gatekeeping in the world of computer programming right <laughs> if you don't know what at least one of the things or three of the things from below the waterline we don't want to yeah we don't want to talk to you but I thought it was like, there's just so many interesting things in here. I thought this would be great if like you pick some that are interesting and then I pick some are interesting. We'll just explain them to each other. So that's the, that's the idea. Maybe I'll start with one. How's that sound? Yeah. So this one, I think this is near the top of the iceberg. So this is a, a quine. Have you heard of a quine? It's, it's Q-U-I-N-E. I have not. I saw it on the list, but I have not heard of it. Nice. Okay, so that's perfect. So uh, a quine is... A program that, that takes no input at all, and when you run it, it produces itself. Oh, okay. So that, that sounds strange, right? So it's like uh, some kind of self-replication thing? Yeah. So it's, it's a self-replicating program. If you were to take it, like you take a Java program, and you run it at the command line, the, what it outputs like to, your, to the standard out, to your console, is just like the exact contents of that Java program. Oh, all right. <laughs> It sounds super weird, right? And uh, so it's named after this Douglas Douglas Hofstetter. Yeah, he wrote Goodell Escherenbach, which is which is a book I read like as a teenager. And uh, he is very big into, I guess, like weird types of recursion. Like it's not a book explicitly about computer programming, but it's about a lot of loops and stuff, okay. right? So like yeah. one of the things that was in his book was uh, Hofstetter's Law, where he said that uh, a project will always take longer then you think it will, even if you take into account Hofstetter's law. <laughs> so it's like a, a recursion. Like yeah. everything to do to with Douglas Hofstetter is like a weird, like twisted a circle. He has a brand. Yeah. yeah. So Quine is based on, I think it's called Quine's paradox. And Quine's paradox, this is going to be super confusing. Quine's paradox is yields falsehood when preceded by its quotation, yields falsehood when preceded by its quotation. 
which, which I, I don't even think you can parse that. But the interesting thing, because I have a couple, there, there's several on this thing that are related to quines. Like the deeper you go down this thing, the more of these quines turn up. How could you even write a program that outputs itself? Like it's super tricky to think about, right? Like you want to print out uh, a statement that's in your program, but to print out that statement, you need to you have also to. have a another a statement. statement that yeah that prints it out yeah yeah and then for the next like uh, you know to handle printing out the statement that prints out that statement like you need to have another print statement and it, and it seems like it should be just an infinitely large program right but th there's kind of a trick to it right so like imagine that you have a a java program right and then so you say at the top like whatever the standard stuff is of like creating a program so you're like uh public static Quine, and then you say public static main, and that's kind of like you know the beginning of your program, right? And then then you have two strings, so you declare like a string. We'll call the first one first, and we'll call the second string second. I'm with you so far. Then you have the bottom of the program, right? So at the bottom of the program, the first thing you do is you print out the first string, right? And then the second thing you do is you print out the first string but you put it into quotes. So it you're kind of printing it out as if it's in a string itself. Then the next thing you do is you print out the second string, but you print it out as if it's in quotes. And then the very last thing you do is you print out the second string itself. So that's kind of the structure of your quine. And then the question is, what do you put in those two strings, right? So in the first string, you put everything that happened before those strings were declared, the top part of your program. Okay. Yeah, And then in the second string, you put everything that happens in the bottom part of your program after your strings are declared. And then you've kind of just turned the program inside out on itself. So then the program now contains like the, the top part of itself and then a string containing the top part of itself. And then a string containing a bunch of print statements and then the actual print statements. And then when you run it, obviously it's going to recreate this. So it contains itself twice, once like as a string and once as not a string. And then it prints itself twice, but it prints itself twice from the strings. So like the contents of the code are actually in the strings. Yeah. Yeah. So like you actually have to write out the code and then also put the code in the strings. So everything's strings, like yeah. duplicated. Yeah. And that way you can print them out. Is it just like a, is it a mental exercise? Like what is the <laughs> practical use of a coin? I guess that's where my brain is going. Yeah, that is a good question, right? I, I have some further examples that, that maybe we'll get to that. But yeah, I mean, one way to think of it is just a, as a puzzle. So it's like a puzzle, like how how can you do this, right? How can you create something that prints itself? And like some people have come up with cheats for it. So like in, in languages like JavaScript, in JavaScript, you can do eval. So you can take like a string of code and just like evaluate it. Yeah. So that makes the problem a lot easier because you don't like any code you can have it as a string, but also like run it in the same thing, where in Java, like you kind of have to do it twice. There was also somebody, I, I'm just pulling all this from the Wikipedia page, which, which is surprisingly fascinating. So some, <laughs> somebody, somebody submitted to a contest what they called the world's smallest self-producing program, and it was a blank file. And so <laughs> if you take a blank file Fire. and you and you feed it to the C compiler, it doesn't know what to do with it, so it produces no output, which, uh, you know, is also a blank file. <laughs> so they, <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty clever. <laughs> so the, yeah, the, the minimal quine is actually nothing. Another thing they were saying is, like, if you, if you imagine programs, like, in terms of, like, like, sets, if you have a program that takes in a number and then adds two to it, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you run it, you pass it five, it returns seven. So you have that type of program. You can imagine it as like something that like maps a number to that number plus two. So on this side, you have all these numbers and they, you know, you have like one, two, three, and the other of the program, you have like a three, four, et cetera, right? So it's like it maps one number to the next, right? And so a lot of programs can be viewed like this. If they take in two numbers, then it's kind of like two arrows go into the program and then like one number comes out on the other side. So if you consider a quine in that kind of view, it's basically, it takes in no input, right? So it's like a, the, the arrow part takes in nothing. And then what it returns is itself. So it's kind of like an arrow that just points around to itself <laughs> with, no, <laughs> with no input and its only output is itself. That's interesting. It's 
it's definitely like one of those uh, kind of like a mental stimulating puzzle, even trying to figure out how it works. It's kind of like, you know, exercising the logic portions of your brain. Yeah. Trying to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. They had a Java example on the Wikipedia and like, which is kind of what I'm, I'm working off here, recounting it to you. And like, it took me a while to read it to kind of understand like, wait a minute, how does this? And then you're like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. It, it doesn't, do anything besides yeah, what the, it that's does the but step, right like you <laughs> when you look at it your brain goes that's cool and also what does it do yeah. what is the what is the function and i guess the function is it's it's just a a fun little mental rubik's cube for your yeah. coding brain i guess yeah like creating one right and so there's also like an an aspect where like a quine is sort of like a life form like like you know like humans like we reproduce like we have children we have our dna which is our code right and then like that is kind of produces another offspring right and if you're like some some creatures are like a asexual reproduction right and mm -hmm. they were kind of a lot like a quine i guess right like they have code that that makes up who they are and then when they reproduce they they make a new copy of it so a quine is in some sense something like that right it, it's reproducing itself it has no other purpose right it doesn't actually do anything so maybe it's more like a i don't know a virus or i, I don't know like it, it reproduces well, without reason but it yeah like the, the basic concept is is true like for an analogy but in biological organisms they reproduce but they don't reproduce an exact copy there's always yeah. that little bit of evolution built into it right so there will be variations and mutations and the thing that you get you know, billions of copies down the road is going to be different than the one you started with. It's funny you should mention that, Tom, because <laughs> this Wikipedia page is deep. That happens through like copying errors, right? Like something tries to reproduce itself and it makes a mistake. And that's kind of evolution is powered by yeah, those one mistakes. Way. I mean, not all of them are errors, right? Well, aren't they? No, not all evolution is an error. Evolution is usually a response to stimulus of the environment. How better to survive? But like at a very low level, what happens is a copying error happens, right? And then if that copying error turns out to be advantageous, then it that you know that creature keeps reproducing. If it's not advantageous, that creature I dies. Guess, yeah. 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 <laughs> so like it all starts out Those with just error copying first. errors. Yeah. yeah. So we're we're basically exception based logic organisms. Yeah, we just accumulate mistakes and eventually hopefully some of them are, are good mistakes. So uh, what you're saying is human beings are a feature, not a bug. <laughs> exactly. But so there is a, a something called a, a radiation-hardened quine. So the thing is that like the radiation, you know, in theory can like flip bits on your, on your computer, right? Like a, a solar flare could hit your hard drive and change some single bit. And, and you know, if, if it changed something where you had written the quine to disk, it could change like a single character to be slightly different. Right. And in which case that that is like evolution, right? There's a small copying error that will happen when that runs because of whatever. So so somebody created radiation hardened quines, which like encode themselves more than once so that they can like error correct on their output. <laughs> <laughs> so they they stopped they stopped the evolution. I think that we have some redundancies like in our DNA too, because we don't want like we want to control the amount of of like copying errors that happen. You know, we don't want to just fall apart if some single change happens to our DNA, right? We have some sort of redundancy. Yeah. Anyways, quines, they're weird. <laughs> they're weird. <laughs> just wait, I got more. So what what, what did you find? So I took, I took LP, LP0 on fire, as uh, or otherwise known as printer on fire, error message that's generated in some of the, um, I guess, it, I think it's still in the Linux kernel today. I think it is. Back in the late 50s, computers were being used at a lot of laboratories, and mm -hmm. they needed to print out their calculations. They were using computers for calculations, and they needed the results, so they had to print them out. And it, they were spending a lot of their time just waiting around because printers were so slow. So there was a lot of very experimental units of printers being developed. So I guess they even had one, like a host of printers that, were, that used radiation <laughs> like I think they use like a cathode ray tube instead of a laser to be essentially be a laser printer. Oh wow! And yeah, it was they used the CRT as a light source, but it, they were experimental and they used heat. A lot of them used heat. So what could happen is if if the printer malfunctioned, the paper could combust 
And if it didn't stop, it would just keep jamming paper into the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It would just keep feeding the fire more paper. So when I first read that, I was like, oh, that's where it comes from. No, it turns out that these type of printers actually predate that error message. So there there was no evidence of that message appearing at that time. So that was, I guess, a a red herring. So then I started reading about uh, drum printers. So drum printers are high-speed rotary drums. And while they're not as dangerous as the previous generation, they could still theoretically catch fire from the friction caused by the uh, drum in the case of severe jams. But no no known occurrences of fires have happened from those rotary drums. So maybe that was not the case. (laughs) So then I started looking at what the actual error was. And I mean, like, this is all from Wikipedia research. So there are three states for line printers, ready, online, and check. And um, if you have online off and check on, then that usually means it's out of paper. But if you had online on and check on, it meant that the printer was still trying to do its job, but there was a problem. And that could theoretically mean that it's there's a jam, but it's not stopping. The printer is continuing to operate. It's going to shove a bunch of paper in there. And... Um, a developer decided that the error message for that should be the printer is on fire. Oh, so it wasn't even based around a real fire? No, it wasn't based around a real fire. It was a cheeky developer that decided (laughs) that maybe if I say that it's on fire, it will convince somebody like an administrator to go and check it immediately because it's running and there's a problem. Like it didn't stop running. So that was like a recipe for disaster. So they wanted... I guess they wanted the error message to be a little bit eye-catching. So if you get an error message pop up and says your printer's on fire, well, you're going to go take a look at it probably <laughs> sooner than later. Wow, that seems, I don't know if it's unethical or, or I don't know, it's, it's a bit bold or alarming. It, I think it was supposed to be. But yeah, I, I thought that this, this error would turn out a lot differently. I thought that there would be an actual fire involved somewhere. So I worked with this guy. Oh, no, I forget his name. He, he was an engineering manager, but he had gotten a start in tech doing support. And in the 80s, he was doing support for this company that sold printers of some sort. And he told me a story that he, like, he didn't mention this printer is on fire air message, but he said that they had sent out like some sort of bad driver at some point that like was doing something strange, like just like running over the the same spot, like instead of like advancing the printer, it was just like printing repeatedly over the same spot oh, really? and the, yeah. that it could cause the, the, the paper to like burst into flames or, or start to smoke. Right. <laughs> so they were getting all these calls uh, and he was support. Right. And saying like, Oh, my printer, like something's wrong. It's just like going over and over again. And he had to say like, okay, well like, is there any smoke? And then people would be like, Oh, that's, a, that's a weird <laughs> question. To ask. Why do you ask? <laughs> yeah. And then he had to instruct them to like to unplug it and take it outside, which like they were very confused. Why? I don't but, want you to panic. Yeah. Is there smoke? No. Okay. What I need you to do, and think carefully. Don't panic. Unplug it and bring it outside immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he told me this story to kind of explain to me that doing support for software is sometimes like a thankless job. But, you know, I don't think everybody has to face this thing where they have to explain to the customers that we were trying to not burn your house down. So please take these actions. (laughs) (laughs) It was probably businesses at that point. Like, I don't think many homes had computers with like heavy duty printers. But from, from what I could gather, like the earliest printers were used in either academic or research kind of context. Nobody was kind of plugging these in at, at home to print things out. So can I still get this problem? Like, like can I still get this error printer on fire? I mean, imagine it's it says that it's still in the Linux source code as of version 5.11.13. Nice. So if something happens with the printer that it sends a, sig- a status code of online and check, both set to on, then yeah, that message would, would pop up. It's also kind of um, proliferated from there because I think that there's a lot of messages, for example, in some kernel CPU code, that a thermal failure can result in a message that like CPU number zero, possible thermal failure, and it will say in brackets CPU on fire question mark. (laughs) (laughs) So it became like a meme, but like a a kernel kernel error message meme. 
Now, I don't know, like, the, the developer that put it in might have read about all of these, like, instances of the earliest printers when they were trying to make them go faster catching on fire. So maybe he was like, huh, that was, that's amusing. I'll put that in the message. Nice. We don't know. Yeah, we don't maybe know. we'll never know. It's a mystery. <laughs> that's awesome. It's not as deep of an issue as Quine's, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think there is a lot more meat to Quine's than there was to, to the printer on fire one. But, I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting story. No, that is interesting. So speaking of Quines, okay, so... <laughs> We're going back to Quines. So, so next up, the next one I grabbed from this Cursed Computer Iceberg is called Yoroboros. The Ouroboros? Yeah. Like how the you... snake that eats its own tail? Exactly, yeah. It's an um, ancient sign of infinity? It's exactly that. The snake eating its tail, the Yoroboros, uh, is an Egyptian symbol, I guess. Yeah, maybe for infinity. I'm not really sure. But so the, the other thing that it also is, is a complicated type of quine has been given this name. The quine concept can be extended, right? So instead of just having this single recursion where the, the program returns itself, <clears throat> you can have multiple levels, which has been called the Ouroboros or a quine relay. So the, the way this works <laughs> is that you have two programming languages. So imagine our Java program when you run it, instead of printing out uh, another Java program, it prints out uh, a C++ program. Okay. So you run your <laughs> Java program, it prints out a C++ program, then you run your C++ program, what do you think it prints out? Uh, the JavaScript program? Yeah, the Java program. So oh, sorry, it's, the Java program, yeah. So now you have like two programs that like return each other. So now you have a loop. A loop of uh, infinity. Yeah. yeah, a loop of infinity, right? And then, like, once again, it doesn't seem like something that should be possible, but it just uses the same trick. So, you know, you write your Java program, so you have, like, your top part, and then you have your string, and then you have printing the string. But now, in, inside the string, instead of just... Like, before, our Java program had to contain itself inside the string. Now it needs to contain itself and also the C++ program. And so when you run the Java program it's going to get the C++ part of that string and print that out, but it's going to print that out with inside of it a string that contains the Java program and the C++ program again. It's still like the DNA thing, but it's like if you, Don, contained the DNA of a human, but also the DNA of a polar bear. And then like, <laughs> and then if you had a child, your child would be a polar bear, but then that polar bear had a child, it would be... Your grandson. So it's kind of like a weird loop. That's, the, that's a great premise for a sci-fi movie. <laughs> <laughs> a world where polar bears and humans. The premise of, of like your, your offspring is like a completely different species and like a whole kind of maybe uh, a massive, like a civilization that functions this way where they, they switch. Like there's a big switch constantly between, you know, one species being the majority and another, I don't know. Seems like a sci-fi based novel. Yeah, like a weird society and then like, yeah, what are these two what are these two groups and what is their different cultures? You could and... call the you could call it Quine. Yeah, as like the title. Exactly. Or yeah. Ouroboros. Or I think Ouroboros is already taken. I think okay. there's like several books that are named that. But Oh, is there? It's a it's more popular than Quine. I had not heard of Quine, but I have definitely heard of Ouroboros. Nice. So super uh, weird concept. Like this is kind of uh stranger and 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 more complicated than a quine right and the the weird thing about it if you think about it is uh that you have to when, when you write your java program you have to know what the c++ program is too because like the java program needs to contain it like so it, it kind of makes writing these things complicated but it gets more complicated than there right so so that that is like a two-step quine relay right like one uh goes to the to the other but but there's this guy, his GitHub handle is is Mame, like M A M E, and so he he has this okay. GitHub repo called Quine Relay, and it says the following is a Ruby program that generates a Rust program that generates a Scala program that generates dot 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 <laughs> through 128 languages in total until it generates the original Ruby program again. 128 programming languages. <laughs> I guess you could have n number if you knew the pattern on how to do it, right? You could have n number of languages. I didn't in even between. know there was 128 programming languages. Like that's a lot. 
That does not surprise <laughs> me like at all. I, I did not even blink when you're like 127 programming languages. Like, yeah, no, that's But if you right. think about it, like, so I, I, I vaguely heard of this before, I think. And I was like, that's strange. How does that work? And now I guess I kind of understand how it works. But I think that makes it more amazing. So that means that like the first Ruby program has to have in some giant string all 128 other programming languages, right? Inside of it. And then like every yeah. step needs to to be the same. Like every every result needs to contain like the proper result of all the other results. There's got to be some kind of method he has of kind of putting them in more than just one string because the string has limitations. Like you, you couldn't put a infinite amount of stuff in one string. Yeah, and like if different languages have different ways of like delimiting a string, then that gets complicated, right? Like some symbol you want to show, you want to have your Ruby program in a string, but the, the symbols for a Ruby program string are, you know, conflict with something else. You have to... Yeah, like the technical challenges there are interesting. So somebody asked on the GitHub issue for this Quine relay. They opened a issue. I don't think this is really issue appropriate, but they said, how long did it take you? And he answered, he said, infinity, of course. I wrote the first program in Ruby, and then I wrote the second program in Ruby that produced the first one. Repeat that through 100 languages. Then I wrote the third program that produced the second one, and I kept repeating until I reached a fixed point. What you see is the infinith infinith uh, program which comes from beyond the event horizon <laughs> oh wow yeah. so apparently mame is is from the future okay. or from some singularity you know that's been created by self reproducing programs it's not really clear that's awesome i like how yeah. he's got a sense of humor <laughs> all right so that that was my my second one which is a quine relay does it count as a second one? I don't know. I think that it's pretty much the same one, just like part yeah, two. Yeah, we'll just wait. I think you're going to see a theme here. <laughs> is there like a third one? Is this like, was that like two towers and we're going to watch Return of the King? Is that, <laughs> are there three? It's going to keep going. The further down the iceberg you go, the more, the more quines. <laughs> the more quines. I'll kind of break us away from quines just for a, another quick one. This one is also, I think, gave me a chuckle the thank, thank you for playing Wing Commander message that happens when you play Wing Commander and you finish the game, it kicks you back to the command prompt and it says, thank you for playing Wing Commander. Wing Commander is a video game in which you take control of a spacecraft and fight in a fictional, fictional world against aliens and they're also allies. It's, it's kind of like a kind of first person, you're in the cockpit flying in space doing missions, shooting things. There was also a big story component to it as well. It was almost like you, like an RPG in the fact that there was like a story playing out, but like all of the action was you in the cockpit. I know later Wing Commanders had you like walk around the the flight deck of the carrier and you could talk to different uh, people and later on you could make choices and it became more RPG-like the as the series went on. But like the first one was pretty much just flying around shooting things. And just looking it up here. Yeah. But it was a yeah, it was a it was a pretty big game for the era, right? Like it was pretty groundbreaking when it came. It was very popular. It seems like vaguely Star Warsy, like your X-wing yeah. versus Tie Fighter type game. Yeah, but Wing Commander had its own world and its own like it had its own world building and everything and its own characters and anyway, but, yeah. So Wing Commander was a very popular game, and it was in like the the mid '90s and. Uh, the, the game designer and creative director of uh, Wing Commander was Chris Roberts, who heads up CIG Games uh, with the Star Citizen project that's very controversial. Anyway, so like Wing Commander was like the first game. And Ken Demarest was the programmer. And they were having like they were having issues because there was an EMM386 memory manager issue uh, error that would kick you out to the console at the end of the game. And he didn't know why. And um, it's not unheard of because a lot of games in this era were trying to do a lot with limited limited memory resources. So there was all sorts of tips and tricks and weird hacks that they were trying to do in order to get these games to run on limited hardware. And, uh, you know, how production deadlines can be. He didn't have time to figure it out. So all he did was he hex edited the error <laughs> message so that it would say thank you for playing Wing Commander instead of EMM386 memory manager error. Nice. Which is like, 
I mean, that made me chuckle. <laughs> so where is the air come? Like, where is the air coming from? Did he edited it? He never found out. I think that once they shipped the game, it was fine. Like, it only happened when you had finished the game. So you had completed it anyway. You got kicked back to the console. It said, thank you for playing Wing Commander. Nobody really thought anything of it. <laughs> so it didn't matter anymore. It was it was shipped. He went off to work on a different project called Bioforge, which was one of my favorite childhood games, too. It gave me a chuckle because it's definitely one of, like, I, I know I've been in that situation where, you know, you're on a timeline. You can't figure it out. you got to move on to something else. So you make the best of a bad situation. And he just hex edited error message, and I was sympathetic with him in that in that moment. Have you ever had a similar situation where you hacked something together to get it fixed? Like, didn't really fix it? No, I don't think. Like, I might have done that while I was in the middle of trying to fix something else, but I don't think that I've ever deployed anything. Like, definitely not like production system. Okay, there's something that I can think of from when we worked together. It wasn't you, but let me. Uh, it comes comes right to mind. <laughs> it wasn't okay. Me. See see if this rings a bell. Okay, okay. Uh, a printer page that's that uh, wasn't working and there was a bug with it. Oh yeah, no, I know this story. All right, so tell the story, man. <laughs> so in this particular product, there was a there was a report. You would run the report, and you could print it, and there was a button, and you would print it. So what? Yeah, it would it would rerun the report again. Instead of just formatting the output it already had, it would get that output data again, and then it would format it so that it was printer-friendly. I've tried to forget this, okay? And then, like, Adam brings it all back. I've, like, taken that and just kind of shoved it in a box and tried to forget about it. So what the, the issue was that the report actually had an error, and the person fixed the report, but the printable version was still broken, and they didn't know why the report was running, but the printable version wasn't. So they pushed out the fix to the report so that you could use it again. But the printable version, he just took the button off. He's like, well, you can't print it, but it works now. And I think that was acceptable for it to be released so that people could use the report because it was current. It was broken. And now it was like a, it was a step up, right? Because you couldn't run the report at all. And now you could, but you couldn't print it. You have a very charitable interpretation. My interpretation it like involves actually the lag time involved in like bugs, right? Where it was like, you knew that this thing would come back, but it might not land on your plate, right? So it's like, I can I can put this out, <laughs> right? And it'll it'll get out there. You know, like code reviews were not really a, an important thing, right? So you could get this change out. And then, like, that person who was complaining would get the report to run. But you would know that, like, a week from then, or, or somebody would be like, where's my print button? And there'd be a new bug in, but it would land on somebody else. That's what happened, yeah. The client complained. And- yeah that second iteration it landed on you and then you went and went spelunking through source control and we're like yeah where what happened where's the print button and then you just saw like a commit that was like fixing da 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 da, and it just like deleted it yeah no that's that's exactly what what happened i never got to talk to him about why he did it because they were a different team in a different time zone and we didn't really speak (laughs) probably part of the problem right it was more like well this is yeah, this is my this is my issue. So I gotta I gotta figure out how to fix it. And I went through the code to see, okay, well, did it ever have a print button? Because that's the thing. There was no print button there, and that was suspicious. It's like well, they're complaining about a print button not being there. It's like, well, maybe there wasn't one because there clearly isn't now. Like, surely, no one just removed it. <laughs> yes, somebody did remove it as part of a fix to the report. It's one of those times where you think the customer is crazy. You're like, you know didn't support vet this like oh somebody said hey there's a button missing like yeah we're not going to remove a button what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) what are you talking about i would never no one would do that we started off with wing commander yeah yeah okay so what is it my turn now i guess yeah Yeah, that like that was all there was to that to that issue is just that uh, the guy hex edited an error message because he didn't have time great hack right and like it it doesn't really have it doesn't really have ramifications necessarily like like the print button. I mean, I guess if you wanted some really cool, like finishing the game screen, then you, you can't do that. But otherwise, like there's no like ramifications. Yeah, like I remember playing Wing Commander and, and getting that message, but yeah. I just thought it was done. <laughs> like ga- games in that era were, you know, sometimes yeah. wonky and you just kind of rolled with it. All right. So me, the next one I got is is Polygot Computing. Yeah, the, the Wikipedia page is called Polygot Computing, but I'm going to call it uh, Polygot Code. 
So this is going to seem a bit like a bit like right. a quine again. So 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 polyglot code is code that is a valid program in in more than one programming language. So it's like you have a file oh. and you can run it as a java program but you can also run it as a c sharp program or something. Actually those are very similar okay. to each other. So that's so the one on wikipedia is the program is a valid c program but it's also a valid php program. Okay. And does that mean like the syntax that's used in it is interpretable in both languages the same way? So the, the way this works is with a lot of horrible tricks. So it's like, uh, in some ways, a, a more complicated puzzle than the Quine one. So, you know, C, C has uh, the preprocessor where you can say like, you know, if def verbose is greater than two, like printf this message or something, right? And so that allows you to kind of intersperse like like that that's commonly done just like hey we want to have a verbose mode where we print lots of log messages so but you can do all kinds of things with the preprocessor right you could say um like pound define paren equals return or something right and all of a sudden all your left parens are actually return statements which would just make your your program like very hard to understand but but it but it it's still a valid yeah. c program because it kind of runs as a as a first pass and rewrites all these statements, right? So the interesting thing is, is that this like pound sign or hash symbol, I don't know what people call them now, but, but like that's also a comment in like in many languages, right? If you, if you put down a, a pound sign, then that's often a full line comment. So you can just use yeah. this trick to do a lot of weird things, right? So you could put a whole bunch of, of defined statements that, that change things that are commonly found in a PHP program to actually be translated into something that's commonly found in a C program. And the PHP program will ignore all those as comments and just run normal PHP, but the, the C program will translate that PHP program using the preprocessor macro back into a C program. Um, like coming up with one of these would be very <laughs> difficult, right? Like Yeah, it's uh, it's one of, one of those mental puzzles again. And so like you could imagine like having a Python program, right? And then at the top of it, you you have all these preprocessor macros that the Python will ignore because they're comments, and and they mm -hmm. actually change the Python program. Like they actually rewrite, you know, arbitrary Python to be C. So then you can now write stuff. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is actually possible, but like you you can now write Python code, and and when you run it, you can run it without a Python interpreter. You can actually feed it into C because your preprocessor macros are in fact acting as a weird compiler. And compiling your Python, like down into C. Yeah, that's that's cool. You certainly wouldn't be able to bring in any libraries or anything like that. But but yeah, this is poly got code, and in that case, you're kind of doing things that have the same output. But often poly got code, they they don't do that at all. So they actually have two programs that do two different things and and use some tricks to do it. So there's a programming language called Whitespace. It's actually written by Edwin Brady, who I interviewed on this podcast. I think it was more of a of a joke thing that he produced. So in whitespace, the the only the only <laughs> input to it are various forms of whitespace. So like a tab or a space or like a carriage return or a new line. Any right. other input is ignored. So like any characters that aren't whitespace are basically like comments. It's kind of like the inverse of what you would yeah. normally expect, right? Because normally compilers ignore whitespace, and now that's the only thing. Yeah, which makes it do. fabulous for this polyglot code thing, right? So you can write a program that does whatever. Yeah. And if the language is not whitespace specific, then you can encode whatever whitespace program you want into however you, you space out that program. Yeah, so there's like a the same program, but it's encoded all in the negative space of yeah, your Yeah, or it code could be file. a completely different program, right? Like you could, you know... Well, if you wanted it to be a quine. If you want it to be a quine, then it needs to output <laughs> itself, right? <laughs> that would be interesting. So polygot quine. So it would be two languages. So each program can be run as two languages at once, and then they, bo they both have to output the exact yeah. same thing twice. Yeah, and then maybe you can add a, a polygot... Quine relay. So then it's like it's always two languages that produce two other languages that produce two other. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now you've just tied together yeah. all three of your ideas into one thing. Wait, wait, I'm going to keep going here. So then, uh, are you familiar with Code Golf? No, no, I'm not familiar with Code Golf. 
Code golf is has very little to do with with normal golf, right? Code golf is usually like they give you some sort of programming challenge, like you know, given a list of numbers, you know, like add them up and print the result. But the, but the challenge is to do it in as few characters as possible. So it's like it's golf in the sense that like a low score, the lower the score, the better. So it it you know it leads to some very unreadable code, right? It's just like you want to get rid of all the white space. You want to jam everything together. <laughs> yeah. And so it, like Stack Exchange, like the Stack Overflow site, they have like a, a sister site that's a code golf site where people post, like they're just kind of using the Stack Overflow format, but for a different thing. So they'll post like a question and then people post as answers, like their, their code golf solutions. And they have all kinds of strange, okay. like this type of puzzle thing is, is kind of right in their wheelhouse. So, so on there, somebody posted this, this following challenge. Add a language to a polygon. This is an answer chaining challenge in which each answer built on the previous answer, I recommend sorting by oldest thread in order to be sure about the order in which the posts are made. The task, the nth program submitted to this challenge must run n different languages, specifically all languages added in the previous answers plus one more. The program must output one when run with the first language used, two when run with the second, and so on and so forth. For example, the first answer could print one when run in Python, the second answer could output one when run in Python, and then two when run in JavaScript, the third answer would be one run with Python, two with run in JavaScript, three when run in some other language. Like the first guy has it easy. You just write a program that prints the number one. Yeah. Okay, so the first guy, that's easy. So, okay, I just print, print out in Python, like print one. Second guy, maybe... This white space language we were thinking of, like maybe that could work. Third, I'm trying to think. I have a suspicion that the responses to this are not, there's not a lot of them. Because it gets it gets harder as it goes. So I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure that the responses kind of top out around like maybe five or six. Because yeah, after white space, maybe you could do the whole preprocessor thing we were talking about. So you, yeah, you use these like predefines. Yeah, after that, I kind of run out of ideas. So the thing that I found said that they had 101. <laughs> wow, that is way more yeah. than I thought there would be. Yeah, it's crazy. So I'm looking now at the 100th. So the 100th is using a program, a programming language called BrainBool, which I have never heard of. There's definitely at least at least 144 by the, by the looks of it. Yeah, and I could keep that's scrolling, but I can't tell. So that's that's crazy. It does seem like a lot of these languages are are ones I've never heard of. Like like somebody created a programming language specifically for the purposes of embedding inside of, of answering this question. I mean, which is... What, you haven't heard of BrainBool? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not exactly a Quine, but but it's very Quine-related. Quine okay, so here's my next one. There is something called the actual, actually portable executable. So why... Why can't a program that's created for my Mac, you know, run on your Windows computer? It's because the architectures are different. But like if we both have like a an x86 like Intel CPU, like it has the same architecture. Oh. Apple's not doing that anymore. Well, They're coming mine is. I have old fashioned. I have old oh, okay, you have an old fashioned <laughs> one. Okay. Um, that's actually news to me. I I didn't know things because I thought that they would have been able to execute the same instructions. Well, so the, the interesting thing is the CPUs can, can execute the same instructions, but it's like the operating systems are, are different and have like different assumptions, right? So if I, if I take like, if I take like a EXE file from Windows and I put it on my Mac and I like double click on it, like it, it won't know what to do with it. It'll say like, this is not the format that I expect an executable to be in, right? Okay. Like I, I the, just the Mac and Linux and Windows have different assumptions about what an executable should look like, right? Like just... Just imagine like headers at the top that says like Windows executable or something, right? And so if it doesn't, yeah. if a file says... It's it's like when the browsers all have their different engines, right? Like they would all take a different look at client-side code and interpret it differently. Yeah. Yeah. And then another problem is like, like obviously if you were trying to pop up like a Windows dialog box, whatever like system calls you would make to do that, like they're obviously not going to work on my Mac, on Linux, there is what's called libc, also on my Mac, and probably also on Windows too, at least under that whistle. 
It's like the old school standard library for C. It's been around for, for a long, long time. And so that's another limitation is that if I'm trying to run something from Linux that's on Windows and it tries to call like the libc program that, you know, opens a network socket or something like that just doesn't exist uh, unless, you, yeah, you're running under Wizzle. But, but so this person named Justine Tooney found this, came up with this little trick, right? And, and it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like our polygot code. So the, the thing she found is that the, the whatever the headers that go at the top that tell something that it's a Windows executable, that you can put those at the top of a Unix shell script. And the shell script will ignore them. So it's a bit like a polygot code, right? So it's like you put the headers that say, this is a Windows executable. And then below that, you put a Unix shell script. And then so on Windows, you have a normal Windows executable. It has the header it skips the shell part and it just starts executing the program. On Linux, it contains the shell script. And what the shell script says is to like reopen the program itself and it makes some changes to it um, so that it's now a properly formatted Linux executable and then it launches it. Oh, okay. So what she in fact did was find a way to make an executable that's kind of like this polygot code. One is the Unix shell, and then the other is the Windows headers. And then, and then you're right. When you get down to the CPU, like uh, when you get down to the machine code, if you have the same CPUs, like the same instructions will do the same thing, yeah. right? It's all that other mm -hmm. stuff, like the system calls and the headers and whatever. Whatever changes she has to make to that executable to make it compatible would mean that um, like you would have to ditch all of the operating system-specific code of that executable. Because, I mean, there's no way that you can open... A Windows dialog on the Mac. Yeah, exactly. So she says that this is only good for like standard in and standard out and opening sockets. So you would have to like build up everything besides that yourself. But even those things, like even opening a, a network socket is different across Mac and, and Linux and Windows, right? Certainly across Windows and Mac, they're different. So she made like a small translation layer, basically a... a something that looks like this libc, but that can run on Windows. And so basically she ends up with this big command that she can pass to the C compiler, and it, it makes it produce these executables that are valid on all three systems. I don't know who she is, but maybe she was part of this polygot code competition. And she was like, wait a minute, if you can encode, <laughs> if you can make something... Look I'm going like to come up with a practical use for this. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and it is very practical, maybe. I mean, I'm not sure how stable it is. Like, if one side changes, so like, it, it, all of these portable code things are dependent upon, like, you know, very exacting interpretation, like ignoring certain things and interpreting other certain things and, and understanding them exactly, right? But uh, pretty, pretty cool usage of this format. Like, the program that you write that's going to be interpreted by the three different operating systems is going to be pretty narrow in scope. Yeah, but it's a use of, of this polygot code. So these things like do have practical use, I guess, if you can you can call that practical. And then, okay. Oh, here we go, the big finale. So I, I interviewed before Brian Kernahan. So like Brian Kernahan, who I interviewed, and Dennis Ritchie and Ken Thompson, and, and a bunch of other people, I guess, they, they created uh, Unix and the, the C programming language at Bell Labs like back in the 70s. But Ken Thompson definitely created a lot of what became Unix, which like, you know, almost all modern computers are now based on. And um, he also created this B language. And then, and then Dennis Ritchie created this C language, right? And so the, the C language is kind of responsible for all the like C type programming languages we use, right? You're writing things in Scala. It's running on the JVM. The JVM like runtime is probably written in C++, which is like an extension of C. So at some point when you run a program, like C is involved somewhere. All roads lead to Rome. <laughs> yeah, so somewhere C yeah. is at the base, right? Like your Scala program is, is great and fancy and all, but somewhere there is like a runtime that it runs in that was written using C. It's the base layer, right? So Ken Thompson, like he got a Turing Award for his involvement in, in Unix, and he gave this talk called On Trusting Trust, right? And so there's a talk and a paper it's kind of, uh, it's very whimsical, I guess, but it's also kind of like a punch um, in the gut because w what, he was, what he was trying to say is that like, you can't trust computers. You can't trust computer programs that you haven't written yourself. And when he meant 
written yourself, he meant written yourself at like the level of assembly. <laughs> and so he he showed why. So the base C compiler that, that compiled the C++, that compiled the JVM machine that runs your Scala code, it has to be compiled itself, right? Like that C compiler has to be compiled. Yeah. So, I mean, what are you going to compile that in? So like you need another language to do it. So at some point you have to like bootstrap this process, right? You need like a base compiler that can compile the first version of C. Yeah, like the proto compiler, the compiler of all compilers, yeah. The very first C compiler was written for, I think for this old machine called the PDP-11, and they had to write the C compiler for that using PDP-11 assembly. So they had to use the machine instructions of that particular CPU to, to build the C compiler, right? And then once they had that, they could compile C in it. And you can imagine a similar process happening for every new CPU architecture, right? There's ways to cross compile, so that doesn't necessarily have to happen on, on every new CPU. But like basically, at, at some point, you know, this base compiler is compiled and then further versions are compiled from that. So it's like a chain, right? And, and mm -hmm. if you're thinking this sounds a little bit like a quine, then, then maybe you see where <laughs> we're going here, right? I, th I thought I knew we'd get to that. Yeah. Basically, I looked at this list and I started reading through things and there was a lot of quines there. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you read an article about quines and you really like them. And now everything is a quine. Exactly. So, so Ken proposes this, this exploit, right, in, in his paper. So the first thing is he says, okay, in my C compiler, because, okay, I'm, I'm getting an award for, for creating Unix, and you guys all think it's great, but how can you trust it, right? He's like, so in my C compiler, I can put uh, this line, right? And it says, you know, whenever you're at the login screen and you're checking the password, just also check for this other password, right? Just like hard code in Ken's password. <laughs> into the login the screen. The super user backdoor. Yeah, right? Yeah. And so every, you know, Unix is compiled using C, and then so every every Unix implementation that uses that compiler will have that backdoor, right? And you wouldn't be able to find that. Like, if you looked at the Unix source code, you wouldn't be able to see the backdoor, right? Because the backdoor isn't actually in the operating system source code. It's in the compiler. So you, you can't see right. it, right? It adds it in during the compilation. Yeah. So, but, but you can look at the, you can look at the compiler and see that that backdoor is there, right? So if you, yeah. if you read the source of your compiler, like, I mean, I don't tend to do that. Chances are somebody has, and somebody would have been like, hey, what's this all about? Yeah. And like, you know, there would have been an article about it, would have been, you know, there would have been a bunch of news. <laughs> You'd see a headline on like Tech Radar. Exactly, yeah. right? So it's it, the paper is called Reflections on Trusting Trust. And yeah, it was in 1984. So he called this first thing where he's just going to put in this thing that always checks for his username. He called this a, a Trojan horse. And, and that since became kind of an industry standard term. I mean, he didn't invent the horse of, of the Trojans. Oh, he did. oh okay. Sorry. <laughs> but, but he applied it to computers and, and gave it this term, right? So it's like this was a, a trick that he's embedded in the source code, right? But yeah, as you say, you can just go and look at the at the C compiler and see that that's there, right? So that's this is where he gets a little bit tricky, right? So the next idea is, hey, what if I add something to the C compiler that can tell when it's compiling the C compiler? Because the, as we said, the C compiler has to be compiled, right? And there's this bootstrap process that leads all the way from the C compiler to, to your JVM, right? So the, the C compiler will look and tell when it's compiling itself, right? And when it's compiling itself and it's producing the assembly code, then what it can do is it can, you can take the assembly code that, that Ken's original Trojan horse would generate and the compiler can detect whether... Um, it's compiling the C compiler and it can add in that code. So it'll add in that assembly. So <laughs> it's one level removed now. It's one level removed now, right? So yeah. now if you, you could take the, the C compiler, you could remove the back door, but you compile it with a version that has this level that adds it in. And now your result, like the source code won't have the back door, but the back door will be in the result, right? But like this bootstrap process continues, right? So the problem is like the step after that, when you have another 
C compiler, right? So when you when you compile that C compiler again, then like you're gonna lose it, right? So so the trick that we need here is something like a quine, right? We need some way to like reproduce this change. So what he comes up with is uh, we need to detect, as we said, when we're compiling the C compiler so that we can put in this assembly that is the, the Trojan horse, right? But we also, once we're detecting that we're inside of a C compiler, let's also insert the code of ourselves back in as assembly code. You add in this code to your compiler that adds in the Trojan horse and adds in the code that adds in the Trojan course and re-adds in itself, right? When you compile something with that, you can take out all that nonsense, but the, it'll get added back in, right? And every time right. after that, whenever you compile it, it will be there in the assembly, but it'll never be in the source code. Right. <laughs> so he gives this talk. Unless you, unless you read all the compilers. You would have to be so able, like, yeah, you'd have to go back to the base one and, and check yeah. it, right? So it, it illustrates his point that you can't trust it unless you were at least aware of all of the code between you and the actual assembly. Yeah, you can't just look at the source code of your compiler. You have to look at the source code of your compiler's compiler and all the way back, right? And yeah. like this uh, is a scary thought, but I think it's like especially a scary thought because this was a talk given by the guy who, who built the C compiler and built Unix. So... Like, <laughs> So like in a way I'm pretty sure that after that talk a bunch of people started looking at compilers. <laughs> in a way like, wait a minute. The guy who made it said that he could put whatever he wanted in it. We wouldn't know. We gotta go look. Yeah. Yeah, in a way he was saying, like, you know, I didn't do this, <laughs> but how would you know if I did? It would have been very it would have been very easy. That's all I'm gonna say. So before before Unix, there was this project called Maltics. Yeah, the the Brian Kernan podcast that I did, you can listen to it here, but more. It, it was kind of somewhat of an unsuccessful project, at least not as successful as Unix. But they were trying to get the military to use it, I guess, and the military did some sort of audit. And at that time, operating systems of this nature were, were like kind of a wild, crazy concept, right? And uh, like one of the one of the audits from the military actually suggested this as a potential problem. They're like, okay, this operating system is great and we can audit the code, but how do we know, you know, that there isn't something in here from the thing that it was compiled with? So actually, in fact, Ken didn't come up with the idea of himself. And, and I think it shows that quines are, they're practical somehow. Like maybe not, they don't come up all the time, but there is uses for them and very odd uses, right? Like this is a, this is an assembly level quine where it needs to reproduce itself using assembly, you know, in, <laughs> generation by generation. Actually, I don't think there's a lot of uses for quines, but I think that when there is, they're probably something really powerful, right? Like something really strange and odd. If you let Adam talk long enough, he'll talk himself out of a point he was trying to prove. <laughs> it's like, I think that, you know, quines can be very useful, but, you know, maybe not. Yeah, I don't know how they're useful, but th there's something weird here, right? They're it's very like, specific. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like something like a, a lot of times we think about you know computing, you know, like what's the best way to like present this problem, right? Or or what's like the fastest way to to solve this? And quines have a like they have a totally different perspective on computation, right? Like the success of my program is not the the result or it's not how beautiful it is is actually how it it like self-replicates like it's it's a very it's a very different perspective yeah like i i didn't get into computer programming uh because i knew it was going to be a really good job or anything it was kind of a fluke i kind of got into it because i took a class where we were it was like a class in high school about, about programming it was in like turbo pascal and we just like built things, right? And they were fun. And we built like little games. And yeah, I, I had a similar class with uh, object-oriented Turing. Oh, there you go, right? I think I had one with Turing too, which is like I think it's a weird programming language that they only used like in Ontario in like the '90s. Like it's it's very obscure. <laughs> Specifically, only for grade nine yeah. high school students. <laughs> yeah, it didn't take the world by storm. But yeah, man, it was fun, and like. I feel like th there's, um, I don't know, these like quines, they kind of make me think back to this time of just like building fun things. Like, I don't know, just like so much of like stuff about computer programming is like, oh, what's the 
best way to scale some giant service or what's the best way to represent <clears throat> business requirements or like how do we be truly agile or like it's all like who cares right like i just want to do the cool stuff like i want to make <laughs> <laughs> but just the idea of code that you can make reproduce like after the source code's gone like that's insane right I'm going to write this thing and then delete the code and then it's still going to persist. Like that's a wild idea. That is, that's, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. And so like, I don't know what the practicality of any of this is, but it's all like, it's kind of, it's kind of beautiful in a weird way. Like I think that, you know, one thing I always wanted to do with the podcast that I probably haven't done as much as I'd like is like people who do like weird and impractical things with, with computers, like, like, okay, that guy, uh, Mame, who made his, like, 128 programming language, like, loop. Like, that. that is yeah. a very, like, you know, he's doing it for some sort of weird aesthetic kicks or, or something, right? Like, this isn't, they're, they're, nobody's paying it's, him. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. Um, it's, it's kind of like back when I started just building small programs that did weird things. Or the unknown, right? Like trying to feed something into something and seeing what what happens. I know, right? Just build weird things and have fun. Yeah. So this seems like a good place to end things. So if you're listening, you know, build weird things. And subscribe to the podcast and uh, to the newsletter, which I'm trying to start. I haven't sent out any newsletter so far, but I will. And if you like this episode, let us know. And we can decide whether we should do more like this in the future. And until next time, thank you so much for listening.